I'll be reading from the book of Isaiah and starting from uh, verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like, a, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. May, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Myla. Good afternoon, Echo Church. My family got hit by the the cold, whatever we're going to call it, that's going around. And so two kids at home with ear infections and uh, all the respiratory stuff, and I can hear it in some of you as well. Uh, and so I am going to apologize ahead of time for my, my soulful voice, my raspy. Um, uh, and, and I may have to, in the middle of preaching, stop and cough, and my coughs are really obnoxious. So I just want to warn you uh, ahead of time. And uh, you have been warned. So um, with that said, let's jump right into our text. There's a lot, a lot to cover. And I, I will not keep you long. I will, I will do my best. But let's jump right in. And I'd like to uh, open with prayer this afternoon. Father, you have said in your word that when we are weak, you are strong. And that you want to use these clay, just flimsy vessels to put inside of them your treasure. The, the treasure of your word, the treasure of the gospel hidden inside people who are weak and frail and sinful and, and it is a marvel, God, that you would use someone to be able to communicate your word in a way that would be helpful. But I pray, God, that you would do it. I pray, God, that you would, that, that, that my words would not be the words that come out this, this afternoon. That my sickness would not be the thing that is demonstrated right now but your glory and your power. So come, Lord. We ask you to come. What we desire is an encounter with you through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you, you, you may, if you've been with us for some time, you may 
have wondered why Mila just wrote, uh, read to you out of Isaiah chapter 25. Because if, you're, if you've been following us, Pastor Ebby was here last week and he preached from Isaiah 11. So why are we jumping to 25? What's going on there? Well, first, let me give you a quick overview of where we've been. And then I want to explain to you why we're coming out of this particular chapter um, and, and so here, here's the overview of Isaiah so far, okay? So if you're joining us for the first time, this is your lucky day. We're gonna bring you up to speed on everything that has happened. And, and here, here it is. I'm gonna divide what we covered so far into three sections, okay? The first section is this, chapters one through five is the, the spiritual condition of, of Israel that Isaiah was preaching into. In other words, how does Israel begin? When Isaiah begins as a prophet, what is their spiritual condition? And remember what we said, Israel was not in a good place. They were not in a good place before God. In fact, Isaiah in chapter five at the end of that section gives this, this story about a vineyard owner, do you remember, that, that goes in and he's, he's done everything he can to care for his vineyard, but the vineyard did not produce fruit. And, and it says, well, what should the vineyard owner do? And the people were listening to Isaiah and they said, well, he should tear it down, he should burn it, he should... And Isaiah says, exactly, you're the vineyard, Israel. And God is the vineyard owner and he has come. And your, your, your deeds, the outward flow of your heart is demonstrating what's actually happening inside of your heart, which is that you are wicked and rebellious before him. What should he do with you? And so it starts off with a real positive note, right? We get chapters one through five, which is Israel is rebellious before God. They have turned away. From God. But then that brings us to the second section, and that's Isaiah chapter 6 through 12. Chapter 6 through 12 is this In the midst of sinfulness and darkness, God will save his people. So, in the midst of sinfulness and darkness, God will save his people. We remember that chapter 6 began with the story of Isaiah himself caught up into the very throne room of God. And, and, and as he experiences God in you know, unmediated, just he and God, he says, woe is me, which means destruction upon me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. What does that uncleanness mean? It means sinfulness. And what we see is that Isaiah then becomes the first sort of, of everybody else that's gonna to follow to be redeemed. He gets the, the coal from the fire and the altar, touches his lips and says, this is atoned you. We get this picture through Isaiah's life of what God is now gonna do with his people. So chapter six through 12, we see this. We hear that a child is going to be born in King David's line. And that he's going to bring light to the darkness. And he's going to redeem God's people. Sinners will be set free from their sin. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, that's where we've been. Focusing on this Messiah, this child that would be born. And we, we over the Christmas season, we spent time focusing on his birth, his coming. Because it was all pointing to Jesus Christ. And now we have left that section. And the next section is chapters 13, or really 12, through 35. It's 23 or 24 chapters, depending on how, you, how exactly you, you organize it. 
And here's, here's the main idea. The main idea of this whole section is God's redemption, which we just saw in Israel. 6 through 12, that was God redeeming Israel. God's redemption goes global. So now what we're seeing is it is no longer about simply Israel being redeemed, but in chapters, especially chapters 13 all the way through 35, we see that that redemption is not just consigned to Israel. It's not just one group of people on the earth that God is going to save for himself. It's actually the whole earth or peoples from every ethnic group, every tribe of the earth coming in in the same way that Israel will come in. So that's the picture here. That's what we're seeing. It's not just Israel, it's global. And the section is 24 chapters long. So here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to cover 24 chapters in one sermon. We're, we're gonna go light speed through this section. Why? Why, why would I do that? Well, let me be honest with you. Some parts of God's word, all of God's word is, in, is inspired and is breathed out by God. And some, but some parts of God's word are difficult. They're just, can anybody amen this? Some parts of God's word are difficult to apply and understand. And we find, we realize we're living in the 21st century and we've got a lot of work to do. And we realize we're Gentiles and we're not Jews. And so that affects a lot of things. For instance, if you ever go back into, into Exodus and you read the, the detailed account of how each stone was put together in the temple. And you go, oh man, how, how, am I, how am I supposed to read this and apply this? And, and, and it's difficult. And this is one of those. If you've ever tried to read through the book of Isaiah, you usually get to about this point, you stop. Okay? Why? What's happening in these next few chapters? In these next 24 chapters, God is going to go nation by nation, by nation, and he's going to point out to each of them where their sin is and how he is going to destroy them for their sin. It is a judgment, judgment chapters on the nations. Now, if you, if you are listening intently, you remember that I said to you, wait a minute, this is about God's redemption going global. Here's something you're gonna learn in the Bible. God's redemption always comes on the other side of God's judgment. So when we see God's redemption in the long run, we're almost always going to see God's judgment first. In fact, that's how you and I have come to redemption. We have come to redemption because of judgment. It just wasn't our judgment. It was Jesus's judgment that has led to us being redeemed. And so here you get this interplay between God's justice falling on the nations and God's redemption of, let's put it this way, some within those nations. So that's what's happening here. And so to do this, I was trying to figure out all week long, how do I, how do I preach 24 chapters? I realized I don't. I'm going to preach the one chapter, the one section of verses that has every one of the themes that we're going to see in these 24 chapters. It has it right here. So we're going to go through this section of verses and realize, and you'll have to read it on your own if you want, but you're going to have to realize that what we're covering in these eight verses is, is, is thematically what's happening in 24 chapters. Okay? So bear with me uh, as we're going to pick up in a second in chapter 25. Here's the main point if you're taking notes. 
God's people, although now experiencing pain at his hand, will ultimately praise him for his protecting love. The prideful Gentiles will be destroyed, but the humble will come into that love. Now that is a long statement, and I don't know, I couldn't figure out how to get it shorter. I'm gonna say it one more time. God's people, although now experiencing pain at his hand, will ultimately praise him for his protecting love. The prideful Gentiles will be destroyed, but the humble will come into that love. Now notice that we have three groups there in that main, main phrase, we are, uh, that main point. We have God's people, that's Israel and Judah. Those are the two kingdoms there who were God's people. They're currently in rebellion and they're seeing now that kingdoms are coming against them. Assyria and later Babylon are going to invade them and they are experiencing turmoil because of it. Number two, we see the prideful Gentile nations. There's a whole list of them. Starting in chapter 13 and going all the way through to the end, we see the pride of the Gentiles. And then we see the humble Gentiles within each of those nations. So strangely, throughout these 24 chapters, it keeps talking about Gentiles that are coming in. At the same time, God's word is is pointing out the sin of the Gentile nations themselves. What does that tell us? That some from those nations are coming. So here's the judgment and salvation cycle that we oftentimes see within the Bible. It goes like this. God's people, they're usually experiencing some kind of a good time. That's what's happening in Isaiah. They've experienced a a, a time of flourishing within their, their nation. They become prideful and they rebel against the Lord. That's usually the first step, right? And then the second step is that God sends Gentile nations to attack them. Okay? So they become prideful. God sends nations to attack them. Israel gets humbled and seeks the Lord. Okay? And if you've read the book of Judges, this cycle happens over and over and over and over again. And then the Gentile nations that God used to, to be his tool of judgment upon Israel they become prideful and they think that they've done it by their own hand, their own might, their own power. And then God turns around and judges those nations by usually having other nations overthrow them. But a few Gentiles will recognize God's hand at work and humble themselves, becoming part of God's people. That is a common cycle that we see throughout the Old Testament And in fact, that's the cycle that we are experiencing throughout these these chapters. So let's look now at Isaiah chapter 25, and let's start in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So notice the, the feel of these texts here. Notice the feel of the chapter. This is much more like a psalm than anything else we've seen in Isaiah. And this is Isaiah, in a sense, writing poetry or writing a, a, a work of worship to God. We see the very beginning here. He says, oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? Why is he praising his name? Well, here's the first one. For you have done wonderful things. Now, I want you to notice something here. That word wonderful, we've seen that word before. A few weeks ago, we saw that word. Do you remember the child that was born in Isaiah 9? What did they call him? 
wonderful counselor. The child that was born that was ultimately the pointer of Jesus Christ was called wonderful counselor. And we've said this multiple times. Counselor doesn't mean somebody you lay on their couch and you tell your problems to. That doesn't, that's not what it means here. It means a war planner. This is somebody who is planning battle. That's what it actually means in the Hebrew. And so notice here that Isaiah is praising God for his wonderful things that he is planning. Do you see it? Here is Isaiah praising the wonderful counselor. So the idea is that this counselor, this God, is planning things. What's he planning? Plans formed of old. That means early on in the beginning. That will surely come to pass, faithful and sure. God has planned things in the, in the past that are happening now. And Isaiah says, I'm praising you. I'm praising you, God, because of it. And what has God done? What is it now that God has done that he said would happen in the past and that is currently happening now that Isaiah says, I'm praising you for these things? Well, the next thing we read, he says, he has made the city a heap of rubble. Now, you might be asking, what, what city are we talking about here? What city is it that you made a heap of of rubble, and I, think the, I don't think the idea is a particular city. I don't think that he's talking about a city somewhere that God did this once to. I think what he's saying here is that he's using the idea of a city as the strength and the center of power of a nation. We've got this city and it's walled and it's got towers on it and you can't come against us. We are indestructible is what certainly Gentile nations would have said at that time. And Isaiah says about God, you have made the city, the strength of their arrogance, the central point of their pride, you have made that a heap of rubble. And notice that these are cities of, what does it say there? Foreigners. Do you see that? The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So God is destroying the centers of power among the foreign nations just what we see in chapters 33, 13 on, we see him doing this and Isaiah is praising him for it. And what they thought to be their strength, God is toppling. Now, quick side note, notice the word foreigners there. So is Isaiah saying that God doesn't like foreigners? Like this is, this is like, like anybody outside of Israel, God is like, I don't like you because you are not part of my people, my nation that I'm, that I'm taking care of. So is, is that what it is here? I don't think so. I don't think that God is, is some, um, what do we call it? There's a fancy word for it, xenophobic. Somebody that does not like somebody who's not like them. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here, the Hebrew word is the word sar, sar, and it means this, there's a moral aspect to their foreignness. It's not, a, it's not a, I'm a different ethnic group than you, therefore I'm a foreigner. It's a, there's a, there's a, a, a moral, there's a fallenness to this group of people. There's a lack, there's a rebellion to this group of people. Well, how do I say that? Why do I say that? Because the same word is used in Proverbs 2.16. And, and, and it's, it's a man talking to his son about how to avoid the adulteress, the adulterous woman. And he says, so you will be delivered from the forbidden 
woman. That word forbidden is the exact same Hebrew word from the foreign woman, but the ESV didn't want to translate it that way because that would be super confusing to us. But the foreign woman is the forbidden woman. She is the, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So there's a morality to this idea of foreigners. It's not that they are just simply live in a different place. The idea is that they are completely counter to who God is and what God is doing. They are in outright open rebellion against him and God is destroying the center of their power, the source of their pride. So here's point number one, if you're taking notes. Isaiah praises God that the very nations that seemed so strong in opposing God and his people can be wiped out in an instant by God's hand. So Isaiah has has felt these power coming towards him of these nations, and he praises God going, God, you can wipe them out in a second. I wonder if you know that God. I wonder if you know the God that not just foreign nations, we're not talking about that at this point after Jesus has come. We're talking about spiritual forces. We're talking about the difficulties and the pains of life. Do you know God to be strong? Do you know him to come against ultimately those who oppose him? Or do we fear all that's out there because our God is small? Isaiah is saying, you're white. You can wipe them out in a moment, God. And by the way, this is prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. So Isaiah is simply praising God for what he will do, using the past tense as if it has already happened. Now, the perfect example of this is the nation that gets dealt with first in the judgment list. That's in chapter 13. The nation that gets judged first is the quintessential example of pride and arrogance according to scripture. It is the nation that Israel hasn't even seen yet in Isaiah's day, but when it emerges, it's going to be the strongest nation that the world has ever seen up to that point, and that is Babylon. Babylon is the picture of strength, worldly strength, and it is the picture of worldly pride And Babylon is more than just a nation that lived a long time ago. Babylon in Scripture gets carried all the way through Scripture, even into the New Testament. And Babylon is sort of a way of living. You can't talk about Babylon without talking about the first Babylon that ever appeared in Scripture. Some of you might know the story. Genesis chapter 11, a bunch of people get together. And they are in rebellion against God. They're deciding that they're going to worship another God. And so they, they decide to come together and they, they, are, they are putting all of their strength together to build this tower, the Tower of Babel. And if you think, well, Babel sounds like Babylon, you're right. That's exactly the same thing. It's the Tower of Babel is Babylon. And they are putting it together and using all of their might and all of their pride saying, look at what we can do. And do you remember the story? God goes down and it says that God confuses their language. That now they couldn't communicate with each other anymore. They couldn't come together to work because each one now spoke a different language than the other one. And so God comes against Babylon from the very beginning. And here we see the nation again emerging. We'll see, we'll see Babylon in the book of Revelation at the very, very end. So Babylon is more of an idea than it is a particular city. 
But here's what God says in chapter 13 about Babylon. Chapter 13, verses 19 and 20, if you're following along. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Now, this is something really interesting to me. I want to show you a picture of Babylon today. Can we, can we see a picture of Babylon? What do you not see in that picture? Can I show you one more picture? Let's go to, let's go to one more. Let's go to an overhead picture, a satellite view. That, where, that right in the center of the screen, kind of up a little bit. That's the ancient city of Babylon. What do you not see in that picture? Houses. God said no one would dwell there. And here's the deal. Archaeologists, normally when they dig down to find an ancient city, they have to dig through layer after layer after layer after layer of other cities to get to that city. Guess what? Archaeologists dug down and found Babylon. This is amazing. By the way, it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. I wanted to, since while we're on this topic and this idea, I wanted to show you a Newsweek article that came out last year. Newsweek, by the way. This is Newsweek. This is not a Christian magazine at all. This is a totally secular uh, uh, magazine. And they did an article where there are archaeologists working in the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah were, and they found that the minerals that were in that area, if you go down to that layer where that was, they had been burned so to a crisp so intensely with a heat that is so intense that they, that they sort of crystallize. And I don't know all the science behind it, but the heat that would have been required for that level would have come from something coming from outer space like a, a meteor landing and hitting And so they have come out with a big conclusion now, last year in 2018, that they believe a meteor hit that area in 3700 BC. I'm sorry, 2700 BC, which if you're guessing, that would have been about the time that Sodom and Gomorrah got hit. So I found that interesting. It didn't come from a Christian site. It came from Newsweek. So um, God is faithful when he speaks. When God's word says something, God is faithful to bring it to pass. Let's go on. Let's look at part two. Part two. Isaiah, let's look at verses three through five. Here's what Isaiah says. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. This is Isaiah 25, three through five. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. So in verse one, Isaiah was praising God, remember? He was praising God over his protection over the Jewish people. What's happening now in verse 3? We see that the nations, those outside of Israel, are joining the praise. Do you see that? 
The nations are joining in the praise of God. Do you see it? Look again. Therefore, strong peoples, don't, don't mistake that. That word is never used of Israel. That word is used of the nations around Israel. The peoples. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. I believe that's a reverent fear. That's not a just cower and, and I'm trying to run away from the, the judgment of God. There's a reverent fear there. If you look at the first line, it tells you what the second line means, right? The first one is glorify. The second one is fear. That means that fear is a worshipful kind of fear. All of a sudden, the Gentiles that we just saw were being destroyed. The cities were being torn down. Now, all of a sudden, people are praising God in the midst of all of this. So notice that these are people from the ruthless cities and the prideful nations. But as I am trying to make sense of this, and as I have read a number of things trying to make sense of this, I think this is people from those cities that are now coming to see the truth about who God is. So in, in, in one breath, God can speak about the whole of a nation, Babylon, the whole of a city, Damascus. He can speak about entire groups and say, they're going to be judged. And yet in the same breath, he can speak about the humble, the ones who will come from those cities to actually see who he is, who are saved, who are spared from that judgment. The difference between salvation and destruction, according to this section, is whether we will humbly worship. The cities that are destroyed are the prideful cities. They're the arrogant. They're the ones that have built themselves up the ones who come are the ones who come with a humble heart of worship and those are the ones that are saved. So the nations are praising and fearing but foreigners again in verse five are being subdued. So again in one breath we see judgment and we see salvation and worship happening. Here are the same ethnic groups of people. They have the same upbringing. They might even be of the same economic class, although verse four seems to talk about the poor. Maybe it's the poor from among them that are coming, the ones who are humbled from among them. But something separates them within these nations from each other. Some are humble and some are prideful. That's what separates them. That's what makes the difference here. So I want to take a moment and I want to consider humility and worship in our lives today. What is humility and what is worship? Because it seems to be that that is the difference maker between one who is ultimately going to be saved and one who is going to be judged. Is it true today that there are really only two groups of people? That's what scripture says. And is it true that the only real attribute that divides them is the one, is that one shows humble worship and that the other is self-exalting? But I wanna ask this question, how does this work? How does this actually work in our lives, in the day-to-day -day lives that we live? Are there is this really true? That there are two groups of people like this and, and how 
does this actually work? So I want to go, I want to take humility to one aspect of our lives, okay? One aspect. There's multiple ways to apply this. I want to apply it to one area, and that is how we read the Bible. How do we read the Bible? And the humility that we show there will demonstrate that we truly are knowing the gospel and responding to the gospel versus rejecting the gospel, okay? So I want to look at a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a lot on humility. He, um, it was a big part of his theology, and there's one really interesting thing worth looking into that Martin Luther says as I try to fix my microphone here. Here's what Martin Luther says. The Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear toward the word of God and constantly says, teach me, teach me, teach me. The spirit resists the proud. Though they study and preach Christ purely for a time, nevertheless, God excludes them from the church if they're proud. Wherefore, every proud person is a heretic, if not actually, then potentially. That quote hit me like a ton of bricks this week. How do we read our Bibles? And how do we show that of the Gentile nations, we are those from among them that are actually coming to salvation, coming to worship, and not those that God was ultimately going to destroy in judgment? It has everything to do with how we read our Bibles. Notice the last line. Every proud person is a heretic, if not actually. In other words, if not right then at that moment, they are in extreme danger of becoming it at some point. That is a terrifying text, and I think he's right. I think that Scripture does require we approach it in a certain way. To hear the gospel requires we hear the gospel in a particular way. And that is, we hear it with humility and not with pride. To hear the gospel with pride is to reject the gospel outright. Because you have not even heard the words, because you cannot possibly get past the humbling effect of the gospel that it has on your life. And if you resist that, you will not take a step further and come to Christ. And so I do believe that one of the major differences between Christians and non-Christians is that by the grace of God, Christians have received a heart which experiences humility. Now, does that mean that, that every single person that we see is, is uh, every, every person out there that isn't trusting in Christ, Christ is, some, is some arrogant jerk? No, not at all. But there is a self-trust that goes into a person saying, I want nothing to do with you, Jesus. I have got it figured out. Now, they may walk little old ladies across the street, and they may help you mow your lawn, and they may do all kinds of things that are servant-like, but at the end of the day, they're looking at themselves saying, I got this. I got it all figured out. And God says, those are the ones he ultimately is going to judge. So here's four thoughts as we will end here soon. 
on how to read the Bible pridefully. How do we read the Bible pridefully? And obviously, we're going to not want to do these things. So, number one, number one, a prideful reader of the Bible places themselves as judge over Scripture rather than letting Scripture judge them. And this may be a person who says, you know, I've read that in the Bible, but I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I know it says that. I don't like that it says that. I think I have a better moral compass for what should be happening in the world than Scripture does, than the revelation from God does. That's a prideful way of reading the Bible. Rather, what we are to do when we read the Bible is we're placing the Word of God, in a sense, over us, judging us. We're saying as we go, as we go to Scripture in the morning, sitting there, having our quiet times with the Lord, would you, Lord, look at my heart in light of this and change my heart? But a prideful person stands over the Bible and says, I wish I could change the Bible. And somebody who lives that way will not, they, they ultimately will not respond to the truth of the gospel because they will not let the Bible, the, the, the Spirit of God through the Word of God have His work in their hearts. They're going to withhold it. They're going to refuse it. Number two, a prideful reader never seeks out other Christians or church history to determine the meaning of a text. This is a person who finds their own meanings in the Bible, and they don't care if anyone else has never, ever found the same meaning. When I teach classes on how to study your Bible, I normally will say that if you found a brand new interpretation, you're probably, it's probably a heretical one and you need to go check it, right? There's no, for thousands of years, smart men and women have been looking at scripture and they have put together and even put down into writing their ideas and, and the meanings of texts. And if you think you are the only person on earth to have that meaning for that text, but God told me so, well, be careful of that. Be careful of the kind of thinking that thinks that God will beam a special meaning to your brain and to nobody else's. That's a prideful way of reading scripture. And ultimately, we can miss the truth of the gospel by reading it that way. Number three, a prideful reader reads the Bible with their agenda rather than letting God's word stand as it is. There are a number of people who do want to bring their own meaning to the Bible. And this next word, I'm, this next phrase I'm going to say may not be familiar to a lot of you, but there is a kind of thinking out there called liberation theology. And here's an example of somebody bringing and reading into the Bible what they want to see happen. It started in South America it ultimately spread from South America to, to Africa to other places. Uh, it, it, there are some African-American churches that hold to liberation theology. But the idea is this. We are going to see the Bible as a book of social revolution. We're going to use the Bible and the verses of the Bible to bring about social revolution 
for the poor to be able to throw off the, the shackles of, of, the, of the wealthier society. Now, let's be careful, and I don't have time to go into all of this, but are there certain verses that speak to the poor, that speak to, um, to even to their status before God and, their, and, and that they, though society may say something about their status, God says something different? Yes, yes, there are verses like that. But to take your agenda and simply press it onto scripture is a prideful way of reading the Bible. And we don't want to do that. Whatever your agenda is, whatever it is that you're trying to push through, we need to do our best to study this, to let scripture stand on its own. And number four, and this one may hit all of us, so be ready. A prideful reader wants to see themselves on every page and quickly gets bored when the Bible isn't immediately applicable. And unfortunately, I didn't even think about this, this sermon is a good example of that because these are sections of, the, of Scripture those, that are those sections that in our hearts we go, I'm skipping over that. I can't figure out how to make that applicable to my life. But think about that. What's behind that? That the Bible's about me. I gotta find me in the Bible. There are people that are trying to find the United States in the Bible. They're trying to, they, they wanna see how the Bible has comes, immediately comes as meaning for them. Now, I wanna be really careful with what I say next and I want you to hear me carefully. If you will read the Bible properly, here's what you will find you will find that the Bible is about God. It is about the central spine of this book is about Jesus Christ and his work of redemption on the cross. And then you know what you're gonna find? You will find the open call for anyone and everyone who will come in humility to him. And you know who that can be? That can be you. And therefore you will now find yourself in scripture not as the central theme of what the entire book is about, but you will find yourself caught up into Christ as one who has now been sent on mission, saved and sent on mission to go and do the very things that we see done in the New Testament. But it isn't about you. And we have to be careful when we come to those places of scripture where it seems to be it's all God. We're just, we're not, we're, there's very little application. We're just learning about who God is. Be careful that you don't get bored at those parts. Pray and ask the Lord to help you that you don't get bored, that you, that you get caught up in your heart with the mystery and the joy and the delight of just going, God, I just wanna know more about you. That's what this is about. And you'll find yourself in it ultimately, but not first. And what happens if you read the Bible in these prideful ways? You will miss the gospel. And I think many have. I think the reason that this book is still like number one bestseller of all times, and yet we have so many atheists that are still in the world, is because as they come to scripture, they cannot see it. Because they have built for themselves, just like these nations have, these strongholds of central, centrality and arrogance and pride, which have said, I do not want to bow or submit to this. And I want to plead with you if you're in here, and that's still where your heart is at. You're still feeling the pull of, of, of I got to do this on my own. I got to make this life happen on my own, that you would repent of that.
that you would turn and that you would ask the Lord to help you to give you a humble heart and you will read this differently. And if anyone has that, including myself, the ability to read and to see the gospel, friends, it's a gift. It's not because you had something in you that was better than somebody else. It's because God in his mercy has given you a new heart to be able to see scripture that way. Let's end quickly with this. Let's look at the last section, six through eight. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Here's point number three. If you're taking notes, the humble who put their trust in Christ will live forever in never ending joy. Take careful notice of who we are talking about here. The Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples. Do you see it? The Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples this feast. Be careful you do not read that all people. The difference between all people and all the peoples is everything. All people communicates that everyone is going to experience this. All the peoples communicates that some from every people group are going to experience this, but not necessarily everyone. Do you, understand, do, you see, do you hear the difference there? What do I mean? Revelation 5, 9 through 10, we're going to put it up on the board. Look at what this verse says. Worthy are you, the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed, listen now, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You have redeemed from each and every one of those social groups. It says that God is ransoming some, some from every single people group on earth, every culture, every tribe. And in heaven, there will be every culture that has ever existed on planet earth represented. That's what scripture teaches us. And so our mission statement at Echo is meant to reflect this. And I want to put it up there again for a sec. You've, you've already heard it read today, but I want to make sure you get this. Echo Church exists to glorify God by gathering people into worship, training them to love and preach the gospel, and sending them for who? For the joy of all peoples. Some people write, some people say people, for the joy of all people. Here's the truth. We're not aiming at the joy of all people. We, we can't. We can't possibly 
Because the only way that the, all people would receive joy is if they had truly come to the gospel and understood Christ as their Lord and Savior. But here's what scripture does tell us. We are called to go to all peoples. Meaning every people group on the earth. That's what the church is called to do. And so when we say for the joy of all peoples, that's what we're aiming at. That we would one day get a fire for world missions underneath us. And the 6,700 unreached people groups that are left. People groups that have not yet heard the gospel in their people group. 6,700 of them that maybe by God's grace we would reach one or two. And become a part of that. But that is the task. Will we be able to bring joy to all people? No. But we are called to go to all peoples as a church. So what does God do for those who will come? God prepares a feast for those who will come to him in humility. And the idea of a feast is that it is a joyful experience. It is satiating and satisfying. It fills us. What sin claims to do, sin claims to fill you, God actually does. So notice that in verses seven and eight, that for the humble who trust in Christ, there is in verses seven and eight, a removing of a veil. The veil is a separator. It separates us from God. And on the night that Jesus died, it says that the veil in the temple was torn in two. And the way was opened between man and God. And also notice that God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of the humble. Every sorrow in his, this life will be replaced with perfect joy. Which God talks about in Revelation that he will do. So God's judgment in Isaiah is coming to the nations. He is going to protect his people that were ultimately have been ransacked by these nations. But as God judges those nations, there will be those from them that come in humility to worship him. And the promise that is true for them in Isaiah 25, especially at the end of that, of that chapter, is true for you and I if we will put our trust in Christ. I, I, I plead with you that you would ask God for humility in your heart to approach this, what he says, this gospel that he speaks about in his Bible. That you would ask him for that because none of us are born with that. None of us are born with humble hearts that are just ready to, to receive it. So we're asking him for it and pleading with him so that we can come and hear that gospel clearly and respond to it and be saved and enjoy that feast that God says is coming for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would convict us by your Holy Spirit to have humility in our hearts, especially with the way that we approach your word. I pray, God, that we would find ourselves in a deeper sense after today, sitting under your word, letting your word search us and change us and rather than us standing over it or us trying to see ourselves in it all the time. God, would you come in power and would you help Echo Church be a church that loves your word 
and has a humble love for your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.